This is The Guardian. Just a warning, this episode features descriptions of torture and details that some listeners may find upsetting. This week marks 20 years since the invasion of Iraq. Tonight, British servicemen and women are engaged from air, land and sea. Their mission? To remove Saddam Hussein from power and disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. The war led on to long years of horrific violence, and the reason we were given for the invasion and occupation, Saddam Hussein's possession of weapons of mass destruction, turned out to be wrong. Despite these reports and finds, I still do not expect that militarily significant WMD stocks are hidden in Iraq. So, how did the war in Iraq change politics in the UK and the world? And are we still living with its legacy today? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. The war that began with the invasion of Iraq in March 2003 still stands as one of the most significant events of post-war history. For a lot of people, me included, it was the most sobering reminder of the failings of politics and what happens when power becomes unaccountable. And as its awful consequences unfolded in Iraq and the surrounding region, the war had clear effects on British politics. More than anything, it's accelerated a crisis of trust in politics and politicians that's still festering on. Joining me to discuss all this will be Audrey Gillen, the journalist and broadcaster who spent time on the ground in Iraq with the D Squadron of the Household Cavalry and the Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland. But first, a reminder of the months immediately before and after the invasion of March 2003. Starting with the Stop the War protest in February 2003, over a million people from all over the UK came to central London to take part in what still stands as one of the largest demonstrations to ever take place in this country, opposing the imminent invasion. Here's a Channel 4 news report from that day. I think the world's going mad. I just feel it's got to be stopped somewhere. Because it, after this, it'll be something else. It'll be another war after war. We've got to stop it. Well, we can argue forever about the validity of opinion polls, but what surely matters today is that this proposed war by Britain is historically unpopular. And the mother of all focus groups has descended on London to bring that fact home to Tony Blair today. On the eve of the war, Tony Blair set out his justification for the invasion. This is not the time to falter. This is the time for this House, not just this government or indeed this Prime Minister, but for this House to give a lead. To show that we will stand up for what we know to be right. To show that we will confront the tyrannies and dictatorships and terrorists who put our way of life at risk. And so it was that on the 19th of March 2003, Britain joined the US and coalition forces in the air attacks that began the invasion and occupation of Iraq. At this hour... American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. At first, it seemed to the government that their big gamble had paid off. Less than a month after the invasion, here's a television report from the BBC's then political editor, Andrew Marr. He said that they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath, and that in the end, the Iraqis would be celebrating And on both of those points, he has been proved conclusively right. And it would be entirely ungracious, uh, even for his critics, not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man and a stronger prime minister as a result. 
but it didn't take much longer for that narrative to drastically change. The journalist and broadcaster Audrey Gillen reported on the Iraq war for The Guardian in 2003 when she was embedded with British troops. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Audrey. Well, thanks for having me, John. Now, your history um, around the Iraq war is fascinating, not just because you were embedded with troops from the Household Cavalry, I think I'm right in saying. That's right. Before you did that, you went on the anti-war march in February 2003. I did, John, along with more than a million other people in London. So just give me a sense of, of the sort of, uh, I don't know, the philosophical or psychological business of being so staunchly against the war that you march against it and then being right in the thick of it. As a reporter, you go to report stories. You don't always go and report on things that you know you agree with necessarily. I did not agree with the war in Iraq. I went along to the march in order to protest. I was so convinced that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction, that in spite of the army telling us that we had to take um, certain drugs as a precaution, I mean, we were obliged to take them. I just pretended that I did. Wow. You were that certain? Uh, In my gut. And I do follow my gut quite a lot. So, yes. I mean, I was absolutely terrified that he would have and the the journalists that were embedded in the war in Iraq I think there was around a hundred of us and prior to being allowed to go out with um, British forces we had to go down to Portendown which is the army military facility where they test and experiment with you know chemical weapons and all of that and so we uh had to go down and we were in a fake gas attack and it's one of those situations where you're put in a room and they you know an alarm goes off and then and, and then it's gas 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 and you've got to get your mask on you've got to get it on i can't remember how many seconds so many seconds and if you don't get it on you're dead so the reality the scariness of it was already instilled in all of us and then when we got to Kuwait where we were all split up into different camps we all had to do this various different drills again and indeed there was one journalist who didn't get his mask on fast enough and was sent home wow now you traveled with um this small squadron d squadron mm-hmm. of the household cavalry into iraq and you were sleeping on the sand as they made their way to wherever they were going and, and and all of that. Just tell me a bit about the sort of mechanics or the details of how you get from wherever you were before you arrived in the theatre of war to actually being there and reporting. Well, so it began uh, with a meeting in The Guardian in the run-up to the war, but before we knew we were we were going to have an invasion, but obviously there was a, a sense in The Guardian that this was very definitely going to happen. And I was volunteered to go as an embedded journalist. So we, as a group of journalists, were to meet at Chelsea Barracks. And on that day, John, I treated myself to a big posh lunch at Le Gavroche. I went home to my house, I changed my clothes, I got my bags, including my helmet, my bulletproof vest, my gas mask, and I got in a taxi and I went to Chelsea Barracks. From Chelsea Barracks, we then went to Bryce Norton, got on the plane and flew to Kuwait. We landed in a sandstorm, 
completely discombobulated. We couldn't find our bags. And that's where we did sort of five, six days of acclimatization as we waited and we waited and we waited because, of course, we didn't know when we were going to cross the line. And then it was a kind of very slow process into Iraq from there. And it was a nu- there was a number of days where nothing was happening for the unit that I was in. And, you know, they would say war. It's uh, 95% boredom and 5% adrenaline. And for those first few days, there was very little happening. Did you have any sense of how it was going from a sort of macro perspective day in day out as you were as you were traveling with those troops not really john you don't have much of a macro perspective when you're with a very small unit of men traveling in in the back of what is the acronym is cvrt it's just basically a small tank that was your mode of transport but then your living circumstances where you didn't sleep in there and you were outside lying in the dirt no toilets, no showers. So your whole life is just really, really shrunk down into the day-to-day minutiae of being with a fighting force. In a sense, I was relying on what was going on um, by phoning the office. I wonder, did the soldiers you were with ever talk about the reason they were there? And I only ask you that because, I mean... Wars very often have multiple ostensible reasons why they're taking place, but this one really did, right? I mean, even at the point at which which the decision was taken to go to war, it was arguably unclear exactly why it was happening. Was it about regime change in Topman Saddam Hussein? Was it about weapons of mass destruction? Was that discussed by the people you were with? A lot of the soldiers that you're with are only 18, 19 and 20. They signed up to be in the army, train, and then that was what they trained for. And also, as you know, it is for queen and country. So there were some that didn't think about it very much at all and were quite excited and also terrified. There were others, perhaps some of the older ones really, who didn't think that he had weapons of mass destruction, but still felt that regime change was an important aim for them so they by and large were for it really tell me about your first encounters meetings observations of iraqi civilians so they were not frequent in those early days when saddam hussein's statue was toppled and things began to move very quickly that's about a month after the initial invasion just to make that yeah we were coming through a small town and Everything was calm, felt safe, so we were allowed to be outside the vehicles. And that was at the point when there seemed to be joyful welcoming to the British troops that I was with anyway. There were, you know, people were crowding around the vehicles and saying, good British, good British. And one of the most memorable images I have, John, is of a little chubby Iraqi boy who somehow managed to have a pair of shorts that were the Union flag. And he was standing on a wall, gyrating his hips, going, welcome, welcome, good British. Now, why that sticks with me so much is how quickly everything changed. Was there, So was there a sense on the ground when you were there that the narrative was changing and it was starting to go wrong? To be perfectly honest with you, I didn't stay long enough to see that really happening. It was already 
unfolding in the sense that within a day or two, the looting started. The lack of thought as to what would happen in the vacuum of that invasion was unfolding before our eyes. For me, when things started to go wrong, I, you know, there, there was a point at which I didn't really want to stay any longer. When the looting started to happen, and by implication, that lack of planning started to become clear, by its very nature, that then puts soldiers in a very, very invidious position, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. they're living yeah. out someone else's failures, really. Did you did you see that or hear that in the conversations you were having with the people you were with? I was back in the UK, but the regiment that I was with was in had moved up north to Alamara. Yeah, and what were the effects, the consequences of what happened at Alamara? So... Things in Alamara really kind of went out of control. There were issues about the paras going in and using dogs and offending the Iraqi people, insensitivity and all of that. But what what happened was that the insurgents, there were six Royal Military Police officers trapped and basically assassinated. And uh, the reason I know about it so much as the soldiers that I was with, I wasn't with them at the time, were part of the rescue force to try and get them out and others out. But what then happened is there was a big investigation and an inquest into the deaths of these soldiers. And that was the start of the loss of British soldiers' lives across, you know, not the invasion phase, but the kind of ongoing military presence in Iraq and things just got completely out of control and the insurgency increased and IEDs were used and soldiers were being killed and there was, you know, losing their limbs and it just really blew up and that, you know, that was almost like the tinderbox, the start of it really, to me anyway. So in political terms, looking at Iraq as the consequence of a set of decisions and having been there, how did you feel when you watched all that start to happen? It was, it was even worse having been there and having lived cheek by jowl with these young guys, their day to day, you know, seeing them be scared, crying when their comrade, colleague had died. And then to start to see what was happening to these young soldiers because that was the beginning of the losses to the British Army and it was young boys that were dying, John. When you look at this in historical context, I wonder, it sounds like a silly question, but I don't think it is, what the significance of the Iraq War was and the extent to which we're still living with it. I mean, that leaves aside the question of people who were bereaved, people who were physically changed by it, mentally changed by it, the consequences in all sorts of ways, mm. go on and on and on. But in his, as, as an episode in history and as, as somewhere that, that sits 20 years from us, which has had a huge legacy in all sorts of ways, what do you think was its importance? Well, there's different stories. Aren't, you know, I reported on the soldiers in the British Army and not so much on the Iraqi people. And the Iraqi people are the people that were completely and utterly devastated. So many lives in Iraq, utterly lost. But 
the impact on the British soldiers that were there too. And then that's when the, the whole situation of not having the right kit, not having the right vehicles, being vulnerable, IEDs were... You know, they were travelling around in Land Rovers and IEDs were just impacting on them, killing people, losing limbs. The, 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 you know, the impact on those soldiers was massive too, but nothing like it was on the people of Iraq and that country. Whatever one says about this will sound glib, you know, but in all conceivable senses, it was a tragedy, wasn't it? It absolutely was. It was a, you know, and it was a, a tragedy that didn't need to happen. Thank you so much for joining us, Audrey. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to hear from Jonathan Freeland, the Guardian's columnist and former Washington bureau chief, on what he believes the Iraq war did to our politics and trust in who runs the country. Welcome back. Just to make this clear, um, I'm aware that there's an obvious awkwardness in talking about the consequences of the Iraq war for anywhere other than Iraq itself and the surrounding region. In any moral sense, the experiences of people there are the vast majority of the story. But the war did have a huge effect on the UK and its politics. And that, it seems to me, is worth thinking about and discussing. After 15 long years of reporting um, on a period of British politics, in which it's often felt like everything is falling apart, it seems to me that a huge amount of what happened in the UK after 2003, the end of New Labour, the rise of the SNP in Scotland, Jeremy Corbyn becoming the leader of the opposition, Brexit, all of them, at least in some part, link back to the fallout from the Iraq war. The origin of a lot of the turnabouts we've seen in the last decade stem from the fact that many people fundamentally lost their trust in politics and politicians in the aftermath of the invasion. Now, just to make another thing clear, in 2003, um, I was a Guardian reader, not a Guardian journalist. In fact, I spent most of my working life at that point writing about the strokes and the white stripes. I was involved in much more frivolous stuff. But one of the voices in the paper that I followed devotedly through the war and after it was Jonathan Friedland, who I talk to these days about politics and the world a great deal. And he's joining us today. Thank you for being here, Johnny. Very good being with you, John. Now, to state the blind and the obvious, there is almost a consensus now that the war was a disaster. Um, but at the time, that really was not the case. Government and opposition in the UK both supported it. So did the vast majority of the press. Now, I wonder, as a working journalist, a columnist, someone who's, whose opinions appeared every week, how did the divide between pro and anti-war voices play out in your day-to-day working life right in the heat of the moment? Well, first of all, it, it really did play out. It was so dominant. I think it's hard for people to realise now when news stories do last a month, two months, and then sort of burn out, how all-consuming this was from very soon after 9-11. Yeah. Almost as soon as people were in Afghanistan, the focus moved elsewhere. And I went to Washington, actually, and did a whole lot of reporting and spoke to people in the administration and came back with a column. The headline was, Turning Towards Iraq. Wow. Um okay because that's what they were talking about. They were like, yeah, Afghanistan is just the appetizer. So let's say by the time we get to the autumn and winter of 2002, the idea that war is very, very likely really starts to come into view. And um, 
that sense that you're sort of immersed in this as a, as a subject, as a prospect, reaches a, an entirely new level, right? What were the discussions and arguments you were having, not just with your colleagues at The Guardian, but other journalists and politicians and all of that? What started to happen then? The arguments were multiple, but they rested on, could you trust the intelligence? You know, we were being told that the intelligence said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Could you trust that? Was that reliable? And most of the British media, and crucially, I think the American media said, yep, this is, you know, copper-bottomed intelligence. But we had, on The Guardian, Richard Norton Taylor, incredibly seasoned, experienced uh, defence and security correspondent who had great contacts in the intelligence community, and very quickly became, and colleagues, became sort of a magnet for the dissenters within the intelligence community. There were these dissenting voices, and they were sort of saying to him, I'm not sure about this at all. So the Guardian had this kind of sceptical tone about the intelligence, about the way it was being presented from the from the start, really. Where I was coming at it from was I'd only very pretty recently, four or five years earlier, I had been in Washington, and therefore I had reported on some of these people who were now in power, these Republicans who'd been opposition figures, and on a very basic level, I just didn't think you would trust them to run a bath, these people. And therefore, what they were saying, I'm talking about the crowd around George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, I just took with a very large pinch of salt. Now, sort of within journalism and where it intersected with politics, there was a very loud sort of influential faction who became known as the pro-war left, right? And in the face of what you just spoken about, the impression that a lot of people on the left had, quite rightly, about people like Dick Cheney, the vice president, Donald Rumsfeld, George W. Bush himself, they felt that invading Iraq and deposing Saddam Hussein was still a sort of honourable objective that could be carried out despite the involvement of the kind of American figures you represent. And they made a lot of noise, you know. You must have had dealings with them. I presume they, they they were saying things to the effect of, oh, come on, Johnny, you, you must be able to see the, the moral right and wrong here. Come over to our side. Completely. And in fact, there was a feeling that that would have been naturally my side and to some extent the Guardian side because the, those were the same people who had been, me included, uh, admiring of what Tony Blair had already done in the first term of the new Labour government, which was its involvement in the war for the people of Kosovo, fighting aggression from Serbia. And so that had been a war that gave birth to this new concept. Tony Blair gave this speech in Chicago in 1999. Liberal interventionism yeah, yeah. was the catch phrase for it. And the idea was, you know what? If dictators do evil things to their own people, they should face the consequences. And they shouldn't be able to say, we're sovereign within our own borders. We can murder whoever we like. These arguments were much bigger in Britain than the WMD, the weapons of mass destruction argument, which was seen as a mainly American argument. Instead, it was as a good liberal, muscular liberal, you should want to use force if that can help People. How pronounced did their, their efforts to persuade you get? Were there, were there, were there particular occasions when you, when you were gathered in their company and it, almost as a matter of it being on the agenda, you were being lent on, capital L, capital O? Well, it was even more formal than that. One of the strategic comms guys at Downing Street organised a dinner in London, uh, just off Trafalgar Square, I remember it, in an upstairs you know, private room in a restaurant where the 
sort of liberal commentators were gathered, some of whom were fully on board with Blair and Bush and supporting the planned invasion, and some of whom were still doubters. And I remember the arguments around the table. Were you in a minority of one? I was certainly in the minority, and I'm struggling to think who else, if there was anyone there who either at that time or then later didn't become on board. And I remember at some points worrying that what if this will be seen as the great liberation and a fight against tyranny? And I just kept going back to my own experience in Washington. And ama amazingly, I did think, and this is a weird thing to say, but I felt looking at Tony Blair, look, I know these people better than you do. He was naive about America. Big thing that's forgotten about Tony Blair is until he was home secretary, shadow home secretary, rather, for Labour, he had only ever been to the United States once in his life yeah, yeah. for a short visit. He just didn't know the country. He did not know who he was dealing with, that these people, uh, I remember... Um, you know, he, somebody who never really got the credit for this and should have done, David Miliband, who was then a sort of, you know, I think had just been elected as an MP, or maybe he wasn't even yet a member of parliament. I remember seeing him very early in the Bush administration, before 9-11 had happened, and he said, are you going to write about these guys who are in now in charge around George W. Bush? They're crazy, <laughs> he said. The Guardian should be strong about these people. So in this period of history, David Miliband then becomes Gordon Brown's foreign secretary. An amazing journey. It was an amazing journey. And I always think that the history could have been very different when he was running for leader. He should have explained to P. He was often targeted when he ran for leader in 2010 as the representative of sort of Blairite continuity and somehow sort of blamed for the Iraq war. Whereas actually he could have said, and it would have been true, that behind the scenes, he'd been one of the very first people to point to, point to the dangers of the sort of neocon crowd around Bush and uh, Cheney. And I, I think maybe naively, but was among those people who did harbour this thought that had Gordon Brown been prime minister instead, he would have been, perhaps been a bit more like Harold Wilson had been with the Vietnam War when he refused to send uh, British forces into Vietnam. And Gordon Brown certainly let people think that, yeah. that he would have going he, that he would have allowed the inspections process. Yeah, there was a very, there was a very Gordon Brown behavioral tick kicked in, which is that the lack of his full throated endorsements for the action in Iraq <laughs> spoke volumes, right? And that we were meant to, we were meant to draw conclusions from that. We were. And privately, I think he would say that why can't we keep the inspections process going on longer because they hadn't done their work? And that was the position of the French, by the way, at the same time. Let's talk about the war and when a sense in the UK that things were going wrong really, really started to kick in. Because when Baghdad fell to the US initially, about a month after the initial invasion, you know, there were reports on the BBC saying Tony Blair has been proved completely correct and there was said to be a euphoric mood in Downing Street and all that. And then things began to unravel. Now, again, not as a journalist, as someone who was a sort of consumer of news and a sort of avid follower of events. The point at which the politics around the war started to feel very sinister and I started to get a sense really that things were being withheld from us, that arrived in the early summer. Uh, Andrew Gilligan, who was then a BBC reporter, did this famous so-called two-way when he was accounting for the news on an early morning segment of the Today programme. And he said that the government had, in quotes, sexed up the first dossier about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. There was a huge pushback against that on the part of the government. Alistair Campbell pitched up at Channel 4 News, demanded to go on air. The, the answer to the question, yes or no, 
did we abuse British intelligence? The answer to that question is no. We it don't know. The answer to that question excuse is me. we do not excuse know. Me. Also, in the midst of all that, Gilligan's source, Dr. David Kelly, who was a weapons inspector, committed suicide and his body was discovered. Um, that was in the early summer of 2003. Tony Blair was very shaken by that. And that was a huge sort of moment, wasn't it, in the domestic politics of the war? Huge. Um, it became the the focus for a whole lot of pent-up feelings that had been building for the best part of two years um, about the honesty or lack thereof of this government and the sense that the government had played fast and loose with a push to war. It was, in a way, this death of one British individual became the vessel for all the anger about a war that had obviously led to thousands and thousands of deaths. and But underneath it was all this pent-up anger about spin and, uh, and, and sort of media management that had been building actually for years and years because this, this was regarded as Labour's, New Labour's big vice was the, the obsessive news management. The, the, you could be, Tony Blair became politically mortal from the point of the Iraq invasion onwards because there was so much anger. Now, what was going on in Iraq at this point was increasing violence and chaos. See, I can recall, as much as I said that I was mostly writing about music at this point, I used to go on Five Live every Saturday and talk about the news with Adrian Childs. I wonder what happened to him at this time. And um, I remember it must have only been two or three weeks before the war started going on his programme. And there was a very, very experienced, posh-sounding, very impressive voice from the military, had a military background, talking about the likelihood of internecine conflict in Iraq and tensions between Sunni and Shia Muslims and all that, and saying that that was the real danger with the invasion. And obviously, that's exactly what happened. So that's a big part of, of the story around this time, the immediate aftermath. And then you get to... What begins to become clear towards the end of 2003 and then is formally announced in October 2004, this is a report from the BBC, Iraq had no stockpiles of biological, chemical or nuclear weapons before last year's US-led invasion. The chief US weapons inspector has concluded. That was and is mind-boggling. I cannot think of a historical precedent for that. That a country is taken to war with all the consequences that entails, on a false perspective. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. You're right, because it's not sort of subtle. It's not a matter of interpretation. No, no, no. The war was fought to rid Iraq of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, and there weren't any. But also there were, as you said, there were military experts saying they're just going to turn on each other. This is going to create a power vacuum. It will be chaos, which could lead a void that could be filled by terror. That happened. Then it came out that they'd done no planning, that Colin Powell and his State Department, who were sort of cast as the good guys in the drama, they had wanted a plan and it had been utterly ignored by the White House. And, and, and week after week, it was sort of either things we'd predicted that would be terrible, like it would be, hadn't been planned well, it would cause chaos, there were no WMD. Then things we, you know, people had not, were not in the script, like, for example, the expose of the Abu Ghraib torture chamber. I mean, those photographs of victims uh, being tortured, um, a famous image of one with uh, somebody almost in a sort of 
being stretched and with a hood over their and head. And, I, and, and electric cables on, on each of their limbs, right, I mean, in that photograph. Yeah. But that, to me, that crystallized. I mean, I wasn't to know, obviously. No one was, right? Or maybe they were. But it crystallized all that moral jeopardy that I'd felt was was the big danger for the pro-war left. Like, look at who you're getting involved with here. Quite apart from senior American politicians, just the American military and the way it tends to behave when left to its own devices. And there it was. I mean, you're right. Abu Ghraib internationally, in the sense that David Kelly was a domestic story, Abu Ghraib internationally was the moment of the moral fall, wasn't it? I think so. Um, uh, yeah, I think so. And it was so symbolic of uh, uh, if the project for the pro-war left had been one about liberation uh, and taking a moral stand against tyranny, this was an image of tyranny. He was held in Abu Ghraib for over three months. He lived in fear and witnessed many cases of torture. This detainee was tortured in front of my eyes, only three meters from my cell, tortured by dogs to confess to a crime he never committed. What was buried there wasn't just, you know, the, the particular position on Iraq, but in a way, that view of liberal interventionism did expire in Abu Ghraib as well. Yeah, Thereafter, yeah. the idea that Western governments could be trusted to, to intervene abroad in order to uh, avert, uh, well, to avert genocide is one thing, but to, or, or to avert slaughter is one thing, but it to even just to uh, topple a tyrannical regime. You think about something like Syria, um, which in uh, the civil war there, why wasn't there really uh, an appetite to take to get to prevent the uh, a, a slaughter that would end up in the hundreds of thousands it's because of what happened in iraq that those people who previously would have been banging the drum for that just in all conscience couldn't really anymore because they had seen what had happened let's talk about political consequences in the uk in the sense of party politics there was a general election in 2005 right so two years really after the invasion when all of this is still very live, the US and UK is still present in Iraq. Um, and the Labour vote came down. Tony Blair won the support. I mean, he won the election because of our strange electoral system, but he had the support of less than a quarter of the electorate. The new Labour Commons majority came down very, very sizably. It's interesting. The Guardian's editorial leader the day after that election said it was the Iraq election, right? So there's straight away, really, in short order, is proof of the effect of the Iraq war on the Labour Party and on Blair himself, right? It was very, very real and it was very obvious. Yes, I mean, what's odd about that when you look at it is, yes, the majority had been 160 plus and then it was 60 odd yeah. after that. And at the time, especially the people who were agitating against Tony Blair around sort of Team Brown will say, well, this is in effect a defeat. You know, this is a massive repudiation of the war in Iraq. Looking back at it now, when Labour has lost four elections in a row, you think winning with a majority of 66, I think it was, is, you know, pretty handy. And given what had happened, it, it's sort of amazing to think there wasn't a bigger repudiation. Now, the, the, I'll just go through these quickly. The next thing that happens politically, again, um, has a substantial link to Iraq, which is the SNP. Uh, Alex Salmond 
albeit um, as the leader of a minority administration, becoming the Scottish First Minister. And Salmond had banged on and on about Blair and Iraq and had demanded Blair's impeachment. And the Iraq war was hugely unpopular in Scotland. I remember visiting Scotland at that time and being struck by that. That's one thing. Clegmania, that, that brief burst of support for the Lib Dems and the idea that the Conservative and Labour duopoly in 2010 was kind of bankrupt. Iraq was in there somewhere, given that the Lib Dems had a clean bill of health on Iraq. Um, yeah, I mean, they really did, because Charles Kennedy, then leader of the Lib Dems, had addressed that rally yeah. in February 2003. And then Corbynism, much later on in 2015. Jeremy Corbyn, you mentioned earlier on the Stop the War Coalition, the organisers of the Big March. Jeremy Corbyn was their man, right? He was he was the member of parliament for the Stop War Stop the War Coalition, arguably still is, right? And that sort of belated backlash against New Labour, embodied by Corbyn becoming the Labour leader, Iraq was really, really in there, wasn't it? In the Corbyn case is fascinating because yes, he was the ultimate clean hands on Iraq, but actually that had already played uh, a part in his predecessor because Ed Miliband had not been a member of parliament during the Iraq war and was able to use that advantage against his brother because he could point to David Miliband and say he is uh, implicated in the Iraq war because he did vote for it. He was there in the House of Commons uh, in that at that time and I wasn't. And he would, even though he hadn't particularly said anything publicly against it, he was able to you know claim the moral high ground. So I think the election of Ed over David Miliband is partly a knock-on effect right, okay. of the Iraq war. Um, and uh, one last thing about the Miliband period, Ed Miliband's vote against intervention in Syria after that chemical weapons attack in 2013, remember how it was put uh, by, at the time, it was absolutely wrapped up with new labour is dead. That was the message. Now, you have to be careful here. You know, a, a lot happened between 2003 and now, which had a hugely damaging impact on public trust, right? The, uh, the MP's expenses scandal, um, the financial crash of 2008. No, no one, I think, would make the case that all of this is, is about Iraq. Twitter tends to do that, doesn't it? You're, you're, you must put all your eggs in one basket. But nonetheless, um, it did have an impact on public trust. If you look even at sort of desiccated polling data at the time, and I'm not that interested in desiccated polling data, but nonetheless, there is a steep fall in levels of trust in politics and politicians in the wake of the invasion. Something happened there, didn't it? And you can probably make the argument that among many factors, it was there in Brexit even. Yes. Uh, the thing that I think is hard for people to perhaps realise now, if they hadn't lived through it, was the extent to which politicians, particularly this Labour government, had been trusted um, initially. There was, now in retrospect, you might think it is quite naive. In 1997, people did have tremendously high hopes and trust in Tony Blair, in the Labour government. And I've always thought that partly the vehemence of the opposition to Blair after Iraq was because people felt angry with themselves in yeah, yeah. for having been let down. I remember quite a few columnists writing that it's as if there was the, often that people would write this about Tony Blair as if he'd been the sort of young suitor who had seduced the British people and he'd been so charming and he'd brought, you know, red roses on Valentine's Day and he'd taken you out to dinner and people kind of had been a bit infatuated with him and therefore the disenchantment was so much stronger when uh, it was revealed that he as they thought it had been you know less than honest about 
the march to war. So there was a process of disenchantment. That's millions of people's story. And it's mine to some extent. Definitely is. I mean, because Tony Blair carried the optimism of leaving behind those 18 dark, horrible, failed years of conservatism, we projected so many things onto him. And he was happy to have those things projected onto him. You know, when I went to a music magazine in 1997, <laughs> the issue after the election, we usually had a centre spread you could pull out and stick on your wall of a pop group. And, and we put Tony Blair in a gilt frame, you know. And I, know, I know why I did that. I felt really, really euphoric and optimistic. And, and, and I can't be blamed for that. But then standing there in February 2003 in the bitter cold, among two, you know, among a million people, knowing full well what was about to happen. I mean, talk about disillusionment, you know. It's immense. Yeah, no, people forget that to be disenchanted, you first had to be enchanted. And people were enchanted with Tony Blair. And I think the re the vehemence of that opposition was, in a way, the sort of heartbreak of that, that the new Labour love affair was over at that point. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Tony Blair. Looking back on this, it's amazing to me to be reminded of what a high-flown, audacious sort of leader and politician Tony Blair was, particularly from 2001 onwards, really. He was always telling us what kind of world we were living in and, and that he knew, and the rest of us probably didn't, and he was there to tell us, and more other point, that he could be sort of centrally involved in remaking the world. That was That was his pitch. And... Any politician in the UK trying that now would be laughed out of town. You'd know straight away it was sort of ludicrous and hubristic and it would inevitably lead to disaster. It's like someone wrote a Shakespearean political tragedy with this central figure who experiences that sort of moral fall. Yes. I mean, I remember there was a BBC adaptation of the Anthony Trollope novel, uh, He Knew He Was Right, at just the same time as all this was going on. I remember thinking, God, that's that couldn't be more perfect because that was Tony Blair. He knew he was right. He just was so certain. And it was amazingly persuasive. This happened globally. He became the salesman for this war. George W. Bush was tongue-tied and clumsy, a kind of joke figure. But the global advocate of this change uh, was him. And suddenly Britain really was punching above its weight. The, the final act in the tragedy, I guess, the final scene, is the report of the Chilcot Inquiry, which was set up under Gordon Brown, which concluded, among other things, that the UK had chosen to join the invasion before peaceful options had been exhausted, that Blair had deliberately exaggerated the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, that although Tony Blair had said, almost up to the moment of invasion, no decision has been taken. I remember that refrain endlessly. He told George Bush... In the summer of 2002, I will be with you, whatever. And when that report was published, Tony Blair did this very, very long press conference when he looked ashen, right? I mean, that really was like something from a drama. The decisions I made, I've carried with me for 13 years. I will do so for the rest of my days. There will not be a day of my life where I do not relive and rethink what happened. I think that moment was in a way overshadowed. It came just a week after the Brexit referendum. And I think people were particularly, you know, Remainers were so shell-shocked and traumatised that in a way it didn't get the attention it probably deserved. Blair did look 
ashen after that report came. I think his view was always, look, you may regard it as a mistake. And if you do have that view of it, at least know it was an honest one. You know, he would say it was absolutely the right thing to do. But what the crucial for him was that you can disagree on whether it was a good or bad decision, but believe him that it was honestly undertaken in good faith. He believed what he said. The problem I always had with that was that famous dossier, uh, the introduction, the foreword written by Tony Blair with his signature at the bottom said, it is beyond doubt yeah, yeah. that there are weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah. The, that, that was not true because there was doubt. Even and he knew there was because the intelligence had was caveated and qualified. That was the dishonesty, not the idea that he sat there in Downing Street cackling away, knowing it was false but lying to the British people. That's not right. Um, the sort of blier image, you know, that the way they would the stop the war crowd would have banners with Tony Blair's name on, mis deliberately misspelt, etc. Not it's not that that it's something different from that, but it was that was a fateful dishonesty there. I think there were, see, I think there were three lies. I think if you get intelligence that you know is hesitant and qualified and you describe it as extensive, detailed and authoritative, I don't know what that is if it's not a lie. If you say no decision to go to war has been taken, no decision to go to war has been taken, when you were told the American president, I, I will be with you, whatever, that's so dishonest, I think it takes you into the same moral territory. And if, and we haven't mentioned this, you tell everybody that the French position on the UN Security Council is that they will rule out support for war in any event when the position of France is that they rule out war for as long as Iraq is cooperating with weapons inspectors, which is something very different. Then again, you're into the moral territory of lying. And I suppose that's why I still feel so sore about it. And as you may have noticed, why these quotes are just just sit there. What Tony Blair yeah. said in the Houses of Parliament and all that, I just remember from the time I didn't have to research those. They're yeah. there because they're so vivid and morally they take you to where they did. You're absolutely right about all of them. I suppose what I was trying to say was that the piece of Blair's psychology that is missed is that I think he he knew he was right uh, to you know the trollop title. He believed it himself, yeah, yeah. I think. Last point. It's a huge point, but answer it in a sentence or two if you can. You're a pro. The late writer, thinker, and academic Tony Jutt in 2005, I was reminded yesterday as I read some of his writing, said this in the context of Iraq in 2005. If the United States ceases to be credible as a force for good, the world will not come to a stop, but the world will become that much safer for tyrants and crooks at home that's an interesting use of words, and abroad. The international anarchy, so painstakingly averted by two generations of enlightened American statesmen, may soon engulf us again. President Bush sees freedom on the march. I wish I shared his optimism. I see a bad moon rising. He was right, wasn't he? Yeah, Tony Jutt was a brilliant voice throughout all this. And I think that first point is one that perhaps some of the anti-war left missed, which was the idea that, oh, an America humbled and, and humiliated makes somehow the world a better place. The, the, the sentiment he expressed there, Judd, about it being a safer place for tyrants and evildoers is been borne out. I mean, the slaughter in Syria, 700,000 people. Assad was able to do that in a way because he knew no one was ever going to come for him. 
And that was a consequence of the mistake is far too mild a word. Folly is too mild a word. It was a crime what happened in Iraq. And the consequences that we're still living with. On that note, we shall stop. Thank you so much for joining us, Johnny. It's been good to do it, John. Not, not, not always easy to go back into these memories, but good to do it. Now, I know that uh, our sister podcast, which you do about American politics, is covering Iraq as well this week. Just tell us a bit about it. Yeah, on Politics Weekly America, it's a conversation between me and Peter Beinart, who was one of those liberal hawks on the pro-war left. He was then editor of The New Republic, uh, who supported the invasion, has come to write very honestly, very self-critically of his regret of that decision. He thinks and says very openly that he got it wrong. And we talk about, in a way, some of the things you and I have talked about, but how they played out across the Atlantic. So that's Politics Weekly America this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week in the UK, wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 